you can turn to Ruth chapter 1. God uses the everyday faithfulness of normal people to bring about his sovereign plans of redemption. God uses the everyday faithfulness of normal people to bring about his sovereign plans of redemption. I'm a fan of all things epic. I was a movie freak growing up. There's never been a shortage of epic movies out there. As a teen, I fell in love with fantasy epics, military epics, superhero epics, sci-fi epics. The more epic, the better. Those boring slice-of-life dramas, no thanks. Why? Because no one saves the world by showing up to their boring desk job five days a week or by washing the dishes every night or by making sure the laundry gets done before you have to rewear socks. Supervillains are not vanquished via consistent grocery shopping, unfortunately. In all of the epic movies from my adolescent years, there are very few scenes of people preparing meals or brushing their teeth or deciding what to wear in the morning because those things aren't epic and they're not entertaining. And a story that isn't epic or entertaining was never a story I was interested in. So, if the Book of Ruth were a movie, I never would have watched it. <laughs> I'd have watched the Book of Joshua, definitely. Exodus, yeah. Revelation, absolutely. Battles, conflict, victory, defeat, Armageddon. What's not to like? The Book of Ruth, just three characters, no villain. The central conflict is a lonely old woman. Why is a story this seemingly insignificant even in here? Do we really need to pause between the epic catastrophes of Judges and the epic era of the kings in Samuel to hear a four-chapter story about how a depressed widow manages to get her daughter-in-law hitched? <laughs> so the answer, of course, is yes. Absolutely yes, and the reason the answer is yes is because the vast majority of the time, God uses the everyday faithfulness of normal people to bring about his sovereign plans of redemption. So people like Joshua, Moses, Joseph, David, used mightily by God, obviously, but they're the exception and not the rule. 99% of the people used by God to carry out his sovereign plan do absolutely nothing that we would consider extraordinary throughout their entire lives. This was true of God's people in Israel in 1500 BC. For every Moses, there were thousands of normal people, right? And it's true in Christ's body in AD 2020. The vast majority of us, the vast majority of us are born, grow up a little bit, are born again, Lord willing, and then spend a lifetime buying groceries and mowing the lawn and putting in 40 hours and raising kids and making sure the laundry is done and then we die. Here's what we're gonna learn. Here's what we're gonna learn from the book of Ruth over the next four weeks. God has chosen to carry out his epic plans via the ordinary, mundane, everyday faithfulness that he finds in us. So we need this. It's so easy to believe that only certain parts of our lives are significant. That's what the enemy wants. The enemy wants to convince me that doing the dishes after dinner last night was insignificant and preparing and delivering this sermon is what really matters. The enemy wants people like my wife, Joe, to believe that potty training our daughters is just an annoying necessity and that the real stuff of Christian life is the stuff that impacts a whole lot of people. So folding laundry isn't something God cares about. He expects you to get it done, but only because he's waiting for you to get around to the exciting stuff. 
So in the case of in the case of women especially, it's easy to see why our culture has convinced so many that the life of a stay-at-home wife and mom is selling out because you can have such a more rewarding and influential life in the workplace, right? I mean, don't you want to matter in the long run? Such a subtle lie, okay? A subtle lie filled with half-truths. The Bible's clear. We need to make good decisions with all that God's given us. Time, money, resources, skills, gifts, relationships. All that he's given us needs to be stewarded well, and you've heard me get on my high horse about making good choices, and we'll hear it again. The book of Ruth is going to remind us that a good decision is not good because it is epic or because it impacts a lot of people. We're going to learn that God is pleased when we faithfully carry out the normal stuff he's given us to do. Okay, so the diapers and the groceries and the dishes and the laundry, the seemingly boring routines... Bible reading, prayer, saying hi to people who are on the fridge, picking up the trash someone else drops, being honest when no one's watching and it will affect no one. The little things, those are the things that God uses to accomplish his epic plans of redemption. The enemy, within and without, tempts us to believe that only certain part of our lives matter and is not true. So, yes, we need the book of Ruth, even though I wouldn't have watched it as a teen. We're going to read chapter 1. Let's pray first. Father, we pray that you would be gracious to us as we work through these four chapters of Ruth today and in the coming weeks. We ask that the Spirit would illuminate the scriptures to us, that the words of my mouth would honor you, that we'd all have listening ears for what you might say to us through the book, um, that if I say anything worthless, it'd be soon forgotten instantly forgotten. Most of all, we pray, Lord, that you would teach us to give you everything we have to reject what the world and the devil in our flesh tell us about what's significant and what is not. We want to please you. Help us to do that in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Okay, Ruth chapter 1. I'm going to read the whole chapter. It's exciting stuff. In the days when the judges ruled, I'm reading from the ESV, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife Naomi, the name of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she'd heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you've dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them. They lifted up their voices and wept. They said to her, no, we'll return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? 
Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I'm too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, it's exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full. The Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned. And Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Well, if the main point of our whole series is that God uses the everyday faithfulness of normal people to bring about his sovereign plans of redemption, and that is our main point, then we begin developing that in chapter 1 here with an emphasis, I would argue, on God's sovereignty. While God's sovereignty might seem a bit disconnected from what I've talked about already, in the introduction, the opposite is true. God's sovereignty is the foundation from which we can say that the boring, mundane parts of our lives do actually matter. If we are responsible for making our mark in the world, then of course we would want to do things that impact as many people as possible as much of the time as possible. But we don't believe that, right? We believe God is the one who makes his mark on the world, which frees us to do whatever simple things he gives us to do. We don't have to do the fancy stuff. Maybe he wants us to plant, maybe he wants us to water, but he gives the growth. So God's sovereignty is a necessary starting point for what I'm arguing is the main takeaway of the whole book. And we see his sovereignty on display in this chapter in two ways. The first way we see his sovereignty on display is through the presentation of the main conflict of the book. So the way the book is written or the way the conflict is introduced highlights God's sovereignty. Look at the first paragraph, verses 1 through 5. Establishes the conflict, not just of chapter 1, but of the whole book, and is certainly full of nods to God's sovereignty. The first phrase says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So, background context established very efficiently in one phrase. The time of the judges, rough time. A few bright spots, but generally moral anarchy, and inconsistency, also a time of God's judgment, God's sovereign judgment, certainly. In this case, a famine, maybe a local famine, maybe just in Bethlehem, maybe the whole country, but God's in control, God's judging his people. In response to God's judgment, Elimelech leaves Israel and heads for Moab. So this is probably not the right decision, but it's at least an understandable one. Okay, Elimelech is... He's trying to change his stars, more or less. There's nothing left for him in Israel. Ironically, there's no food in Bethlehem. 
a city whose name means house of bread. So maybe, maybe Elimelech is a farmer and he's out of work. He needs to feed his family. The promised land is not living up to its name. So he's going in search for a more promising land. Doesn't go well. Before too long, Elimelech is dead. We don't know how long. End of verse 2 says they went into the country of Moab and remained there. For how long they remained there before Elimelech dies, we don't know. Probably not too long, though. After he dies, his, son mar his sons marry Moabite wives, and then they live there for 10 years. So time is passing, and then the sons die. And these three deaths create the major conflict of the book, which is stated in the second half of verse 5. This is the problem that four chapters will work to solve. The woman was left without her two sons and her husband. I would argue the author is making implicitly clear, if that is a thing that exists, that God has created this situation. It's not a normal situation. Famines are not normal. Your husband and two sons dying is not normal. If, Elimel if Elimelech was anywhere near Naomi's age, then he wasn't anywhere near dying of old age, and Malon and Kilion were certainly younger men, right? So this is a tragic situation. Tragic situations, by definition, are not normal. There are no normal tragedies, which means either A, this is an unfortunate coincidence, the cold universe of chance or fate, dealing Naomi an unlucky hand, and for some reason the inspired writer decided to write it down, which is crazy, or God is sovereign and it's part of his plan. Okay, so we know the second one is true, right? But I'm arguing that the book is written in such a way as to emphasize that that's true. The writer wants you to notice that, okay? More than it just being something that we know is true in the background. So if you're not convinced, let's look ahead at the way Naomi responds to her situation. So I said, we see God's sovereignty on display in chapter one in two different ways. The first is the presentation of the main conflict in the first paragraph. The second is the way Naomi responds to the conflict, which is mixed. Verses 6 through 22, Naomi decides to return home, and the writer dedicates most of this section to the dialogue between Naomi and her two daughters-in-law, a conversation of all that the writer could have included that happens from the decision to leave to arriving in Bethlehem. We get this conversation. Let me highlight three things about the situation and the conversation. First, this is actually a really, really, really bad situation. Naomi isn't whining, in other words. It's far worse than we even tend to think. So for starters, husband and son's dead. Okay, Elimelech's been dead for 10 years. So time has worked on that wound, no doubt. But her two sons, so far as we know, died recently. Losing children is a unique kind of sorrow. I can't speak to it. Most of us can't speak to it. But we know it's, it's uniquely tragic, right? Eventually, time will work on that wound in Naomi's life. But Naomi's situation is beyond just the immediate pain of the loss because without a husband or sons, she has no future in a patriarchal society. She can't just get a job and take care of herself, can't go back to college and become marketable. Doesn't work like that. So she's heading back to Israel because she's heard that there's at least food there, right? She's setting the bar at food to eat. But there's nothing beyond that. Her best case scenario is that she'll get enough food to survive from Israel's welfare system. We'll see. She'll live a long but lonely and uncomfortable and destitute life before she dies and nobody mourns over her. That's her outlook. 
Okay? And that's not an unrealistic outlook as she looks ahead at her future. It's not a good future. And it wouldn't be any better for Ruth or Orpah, which is why Naomi begs them to go back to their homeland. Verses 8 and 9. Go! Return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you've dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. That is to say, your future husband, because Ruth and Orpah are still young enough that if they go back home, it's certainly likely they'll find someone to marry and they'll live happily ever after. Going back to Israel with Naomi is an economic death sentence. Okay, Immigrant Moabite women we suspect, are not what is sought after by the men in Israel. That's kind of a speculation, but I think it's probably true. Ruth and Orpah would be working to survive just like Naomi would be, is the implication. The bottom of the barrel in society. So Naomi is not being entirely unkind by encouraging them to turn and go back because she doesn't want them to share in the same bleak future. And the future is bleak, okay? So first thing about her response in the situation is that it is actually really, really, really bad. Okay? That said, second thing to highlight about her response is that it does blind her. Her grief and sorrow, as grief and sorrow can do, very easily becomes selfish, selfish things. Grief is a selfish enemy. After Naomi's first encouragement to return to her homeland, the girls stay, which is very commendable. Yes, given what, what we've just said. Look at Naomi's response to their loyalty. Verses 11 through 13. Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way. I'm too old to have a husband. Even if I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night, should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it's exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Ruth and Orpah are trying to be loyal even when it's hard. Naomi is discouraging their loyalty, which is not a good thing. Okay, Naomi describes this ridiculous hypothetical, right? Even if she were to get married that afternoon, have sex that night, happen to conceive twins, and then Ruth and Orpah sit around for two decades waiting for the twins to grow up just so she can marry them, right? It's getting weird, right? The point is not that it's realistic. The point is it's crazy, right? Naomi's saying it's crazy. Why would you do this? Okay, that's Naomi's point. The problem with her point is that she's discouraging a good thing. She's discouraging Ruth and Orpah's selflessness. They know. They know how hopeless it is. They don't need new information about the chances of success going with Naomi. They want to stick with her. They're doing the more honorable thing. So Naomi's discouraging it, and that's not good. She's also forgetting that some things are more important than physical and economic security. Naomi's lost everything physically. She's left hopeless, and she is over-focusing on the physical and the economic. Some things are more important than that, right? Namely, that it's better to serve the true God in a situation of worldly insecurity than it is to serve false gods in a situation of worldly security, right? Naomi is actively encouraging the second one. It's better for you back there. This is seen most vividly in verse 15. She's convinced Orpah. Orpah leaves. Ruth doesn't. And she says to Ruth, in response to Ruth's enduring steadfastness, see, in verse 15, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people 
and to her gods, return after your sister-in-law. She even mentions that she's returned to her false gods, and then in the same breath says, you should too, Ruth. You're better off in that situation. So Naomi's physical and economic destitution blinds her to the things that matter more. On a side note, she's totally forgotten about one other very key thing or one other very key person, which is Boaz, right? Spoiler alert. There is... The, the problem is that Ruth would need to marry a relative. We'll talk about this in future weeks. It's got to be a relative that she marries. Naomi doesn't think there's a relative back in Israel for her to marry. That's why she thinks it's hopeless. But there is. There's a dude waiting in Israel who Ruth could marry. I mean, Naomi just, just totally slips Naomi's mind. It appears. So my conclusion is that's what sorrow does. You overfocus on one thing. You can't even think about solving the problem or things that are, that are most important. Ruth's famous proclamation of loyalty doesn't even make Naomi feel any better. 16 through 18, Ruth says, Don't urge me to leave you or to return from following you. Where you go, I'll go. Where you lodge, I'll lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I'll die. Meaning I'm not ever going to come back to Moab. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also. If anything but death parts me from you. Naomi's response. When Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said nothing, right? I mean, how about thank you? <laughs> nothing. And then what's even worse, they get back to Israel, and Naomi tells everybody that God has brought her back empty, right? Even though Ruth came with her, empty? But Ruth's, Ruth's loyalty does nothing for Naomi's physical or economic situation. She might as well be coming back alone right? In Naomi's mind, which is all Naomi's focusing on. So first thing about Naomi's response, it is a really, really bad situation, but she is blinded by her grief and sorrow. Lastly, the final thing to highlight is that despite her blindness, she does get one thing right, and that is that she gives credit where credit is due in regard to her situation. Who created her situation? I'm arguing that what's really on display in this first chapter is God's sovereignty and the way the writer First, frames the conflict of the book, and now shows us Naomi's response, highlights this. Because while she isn't perfect, she does give credit where it's due. End of verse 13, she says, The hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And then verses 20 through 21, four times she gives credit to God. Don't call me Naomi. Naomi means pleasant one. Don't call me that. Call me Mara, which means bitterness. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full. The Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So Naomi's struggling spiritually. In fact, there's serious red flags about the way Naomi's acting in chapter 1. Serious problems with her spiritual state. But her problem isn't that she doesn't believe in the sovereignty of God. The problem is that she does. What she says is true. God did this to her. Not fate or bad luck. She doesn't even, she doesn't even say the, our common Christianese phrase, God allowed it into her life. Doesn't even say that. God did this to me. He made me empty. I suspect, I suspect Naomi knows it was the wrong choice for Elimelech and her to come to Moab. I think she probably knows that. That's speculation. 
I think what we see from Naomi is a mix of good theology, belief in God's sovereignty, human anger, remorse, because she knows it was the wrong thing to come to Moab, and sorrow that has blinded her. So as we close chapter one and get ready for chapter two next week, I hope you are convinced that in order to experience the book of Ruth in all of its depth and complexity and richness, you have to become comfortable with the sovereignty of God. You'll just miss it otherwise, okay? If you can't accept the sovereignty of God, then the main point makes no sense. God uses the everyday faithfulness of normal people to bring about his sovereign plans of redemption. If you don't embrace his sovereignty, then why would you ever believe that the simple stuff can possibly matter? If he doesn't orchestrate things and use everything according to his will, then it would make sense that the laundry you folded doesn't matter at all, and that instead you need to go and do something that does matter. But we're rejecting that. He uses the normal to achieve the impossible, okay? He doesn't need superstars, which we're going to see as we move into chapter 2 next week, as Ruth and Naomi get back and they start plowing ahead. Let's pray. Father, how encouraging it is that you care about even the smallest aspects of our lives, that you're involved in our activities, even the things that we don't feel are significant. More than this, in your sovereignty, you've decided to use us to carry out your plans. You draw us to yourself and then ask us to be faithful in whatever we do. Help us to do this. Help us to think about how we can do this better in the coming weeks. Help us to accept the truth that you fill and you empty and you give and you take away, and to simply do what you have set before us in faithfulness as your servants, and to leave, the, to leave the epic plans to you. Thank you for teaching us this. Thank you for the book of Ruth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.